Welcome, everyone, to our podcast called Frontier Faith. Ryan and I are concluding our conversation on church and culture, and in the future, I do promise that it will sound a little bit better. We'll get this streamlined a little bit more, so that way we can uh, transition between these episodes a little bit better. But in the meantime, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your willingness to listen And we really do hope that you learn something today, that you enjoy our conversation, and that you become more comfortable knowing that it's okay not to know. That's how we came to learn how there were some cracks within our understanding of Christ and culture or church and culture as we were given it. And uh, by no means do we have an answer to this. In fact, uh, we talked about this briefly, and it just seems like there's not really an answer just yet. But we wanted to kick around some ideas with you, and we wanted to explore, because that's what you do on the frontier, we wanted to explore where we are right now and what kind of thoughts we're going through. And we want to ask the fundamental question this last part, what do we do with church and culture right now? So Ryan, where do you see yourself with church and culture? You know, it, it's kind of, like you said, it's it's kind of murky, I think, for me right now. Um, I think Part of what makes it difficult for me is, um, you know, I, well, a part is that I'm dealing with some difficult things that happened to me and and around me in church. And, and so that kind of, I want to recognize how that can affect this kind of discussion, right? I'm working on not being jaded or anything like that. But, but more than that, I think what's tough about this idea of what do we do with church and culture is that because for so long, like we talked about, it was always this idea of the church was somehow against culture, right? The church was over culture, even you might say. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is, is I think the church can't be separate from culture in that way because it's so much um, central to culture, at least in America anyway, right? I mean, you have all the way from the really when the Puritans arrived (laughs) or whoever it was, right? I mean, you've got revivalism, you've got all of it. Like, I don't think you can really separate the two. Um, I mean, sure, it looks a lot of different ways. Sure, it's changed a lot. But I mean, church is shaped by culture and in turn has shaped culture. And so I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to do with it other than to say, that relationship maybe needs to be examined more in the sense of like, how does church shape culture and vice versa? You know, I don't know exactly how to do that (laughs) other than maybe talking about it like this, but that's, that's kind of what I've been pondering right now is um, given that these two seem inextricably linked to me, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of it. Yeah. I think that's really interesting the way you phrase that because it's sort of the way that we operated with culture as a church through my upbringing and your your upbringing as well, our early lives, is really founded on some philosophical stuff. And we don't need to get into that too much. It touches on all the time for me because I just, I see it this way. But 
there's this myth that you can separate these two and it kind of flows within like one of two ways of seeing it either that you can segment life and and I see that in the church like crazy like you can segment part of who you are um in fact the way that most people go to church is they segment that part away from the rest of their life and they just do that on Sundays right yeah so there's that problem on compartmentalization or um, segmentation or whatever. But then there's also the problem that we brought up in the Bible uh, podcast, which was uh, objectivity, right? That there can be this objective um, outside of experience, which would, of course, be here in this example, God's law or God's whatever, uh, his truth that then can impose itself upon the culture rather, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, well, I want to say recklessly. I don't think that's quite right. Uniformly? Yeah. Uh, Well, what I'm thinking of is without considering context. So it happens no matter what, right? It doesn't matter what the context of one's, sin, if you were to use that label, one sin, it doesn't matter what it was, it is a sin. And and a good example of this actually came up um, today for me is the white lie, right? And it's one of those fun philosophical questions, is a white lie really a lie? And um, I don't want to get into that debate, but what a white lie highlights is that lies done for good intentions, lies done um, to help the other person rather than to self-serve, which is what a white lie usually is, might make the context relevant. And yet, when it comes to, and that's just an example of sin, but when it comes to cultural things, we push the context out of the way and say, no, that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is God says or God does or Christians should or whatever it might be. Well, yeah, and that totally ignores the context of the person and the group within which that's being said, right? Um, Yeah. Like, that's why you get, uh, well, God obviously says blank, and that blank is different depending on whether it's a Catholic or a Lutheran or an Orthodox person or a Mormon or whoever it is, you know? Mm and I think it's the same way with culture. Like you just, there's no escaping the fact um, that context, you know, I had a, had a professor in undergrad. It was actually one of my Greek teachers and he, he'd always be like context, context, context. Now he was talking about translation, but I, I often think that of like, it's really true about everything. You know, it's, it's the all important thing is context. And that's like you said, I think that's what complicates this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think that if I were to push that a little bit further, what I started to notice was not only is context important, but because I think well-meaning Christians that believe in objectivity and in this whole idea that Christ or church is against culture would say the same thing. But I think where it became different to me or where I started to get more challenged into where I am kind of now is around the idea that context not only is important, but is chiefly important. It is the thing that you have to consider. And I started to notice that because what was going on is that people were telling stories. They weren't talking about abstract beliefs. 
So people do things and believe things because of context within their life. They don't, as much as that makes me sad, they don't look at an idea and say, hey, that's a really convincing idea. I'm going to believe that. Not all the time. I know that sometimes that's probably the case, but most of the time it's the context of one's life that intersects with these ideas that then they say, huh, I never thought of it that way, or huh, that really makes uh, makes a lot of sense and, and matters to me now. Well, and, and to be fair, that kind of uh, understanding or examination is difficult to do, especially with things like culture, because you're so inculcated in, or I don't know if that's the right word, but you're so wrapped in culture from your very beginning throughout your entire mm -hmm. life, that a lot of things that happen, you don't even think about as being cultural until you go somewhere else and they don't do it that way, you know, right. um, yeah. or you meet someone else who um, comes from a different culture or who has a different custom or whose language is different. And that makes a big difference. And, and then I think, I think the more you're able to interact with different cultures or different people, I think it, it helps make that kind of examination you're talking about easier to do or more possible or something like that. And and I wonder if that has something to do with where we can go with this church and culture thing is like maybe what the the thing we're trying to do on the frontier is how do we see a less homogenous church culture? in the sense of what, how do we welcome different people in? How do we um, interact with people who are different than us? And not just in an ecumenical church sense, right? I mean, that too, but especially with people who aren't Christians and, you know, like that kind of thing. I gave a really good example. This is the first thought that went through my brain when you were talking. A good example of Christian enculturation. And it was uh, an older group of people I was meeting with, and um, I, they asked me, what is it that you want us to know? And I said, because I know how uh, these particular older folks um, handle me and deal with me, I said, what I would really love you to know is that when you come to me and you tell me that XYZ has to happen or it's right or it's wrong, and I said certain things like, you know, if you think that I really should preach from the pulpit or if you think this or that or the other, I can guarantee you there's somebody else in our congregation that feels the same exact way. Or I'm sorry, the opposite way, the exact opposite right. way. And that was interesting because of the reaction. The reaction was, really? Like it hadn't occurred to them. And then the second example that comes from that conversation was we were talking about how the church goes uh, and does its mission. And they said, uh, I told them, you know, what's really interesting getting to know you is that you all have Lutheran friends and you've had Lutheran friends from your entire, for your entire life, from your very childhood. You grew up to ne next to other Lutherans. You know them, you went to high school with them, you may have even went to college with them, and you haven't moved away, so you're still with those very same friends. And they're nodding their heads, right? And I said, do you know how many Lutheran friends I have? And they expected me to say a ton, right? But I said, 
I, I have maybe a handful of Lutheran friends. Now, I know lots of Lutherans, right. but I have just a handful of Lutheran fan friends. In fact, I have more non-Lutheran friends in my life than I have Lutheran friends. And then I really challenged them and I said, actually, I have more non-Christian friends in my life than I've had Christian friends. It's only lately that it's skewed the other way. And for them... What's interesting about that is that they just could not fathom that. Like they, they were floored by that example. Right. They really couldn't understand that at all. Just as the same way I couldn't understand that they had only Lutheran friends. I'm like, there aren't very many of us. How do you have so many Lutheran friends? But yeah, I mean, I think you can find this in every group, but some groups more than others. And I think your group is a very insular one, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, and when, especially, you know, 50 years ago or whatever it was when these people were, um, you know, forming their significant relationships and stuff, like, I think it's also a, and maybe what part of it is too, is that it can be hard to accept or recognize when culture changes, especially if you don't like the way it's changed or you're not able to really understand how it's changed, you know? I think in that mm-hmm. case, it's really easy to just pretend it hasn't or and I don't mean in the sense of like, it's not always people being like, well, I know it's different, but I, I don't care to do that. Thank you. I, I yeah. think it's more yeah. of a not always realized or they do. Someone does realize it, but they just have no idea how to interact with it because it's so different. Um, this is sort of an example. My uh, it's more it has to do with technology, but I think it's a good example. My grandmother, when she was still alive, I was talking to her about music and and I, I told her that, you know, she said something about, well, do I have any CDs? And I said, no, grandma, nobody buys those anymore. Right. And she said, well, how do Mm -hmm. you play music? I said, well, you know, I get it off the internet and I think I had an iPod or something in those days and I put it on here and, and it was, you know, real small. And she looks at it and she's like, well, how does the music go on? Like she just could not understand this idea of digital information that way. Um, And I think that kind of uh, experience happens to all of us at some point. Um, And, Maybe what makes it so difficult is when we think about the church, we think of the church as this um, institution or group that has existed since at least since Jesus was on the earth, you know, like very long time. And it's not supposed to change in that way. At least some people think that, right? It's supposed to be this um, enduring uh, truth is always true. Um, The Bible is the word of God kind of like it's really hard, I think. And not just for, I mean, I have times when that's hard to, to wrestle with. Right. But the way we interact with all of that does change all the time. And like I said, I'll admit it. It's, it's hard to, hard to grapple with. And, you know, and I'm thinking about like, so in the, you know, Pentecostal world, the, the big thing is about taking the gospel to every nation, you know, every people group. They've even got people who are keeping track of which which groups don't have the Bible translated in their language yet. And there's a whole I mean, it's not just Pentecostals that do that, but um, they're very supportive of that idea, you know. And I think about that of like, gosh, like that whole thing is another example of like how flexible we have to be with culture, you know, and recognize that 
it's a it's a tough thing to do because no matter how hard we try, we can't totally separate ourselves from the culture we're in. And so when we try to tell other people about Jesus or whatever our understanding of the gospel is, I mean, we're doing that from within an American evangelical or Lutheran or Catholic or whatever framework that we're in, you know. Yeah. I, I almost wish there was some kind of um cultural vacuum we could put the gospel into <laughs> and we could just like give it to people, you know, but like even when Jesus said it, it wasn't in a vacuum. Right. I mean, like it was, it was within his cultural context at the same time. And so I guess what I'm thinking about as we talk about this is for a lot of my life, culture and the world or however you want to define that was viewed with skepticism and fear and maybe self-righteousness, you know, good and bad things both. But like this idea that it was um, bad and to be resisted. And I wonder if like, what would it look like to go the other way with that of like, how, like, how, where is the good in all of this that we find ourselves in? And how does that relate to the gospel or to our lives with Jesus or to our understanding of all these things that we talk about every Sunday or, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Um, and I wonder anyone who might be listening, have you considered where the good is? Because I've honestly, in my experience, other than uh, people like Ryan, I've noticed that most people don't think of it that way. They don't think of that there could be good in the culture. Or if there is, they think it, it all came from some Christian offshoot or origin or something, you know. Yeah, and we get that a little bit with um, Christian movies. We get that with Christian music and all that, right? It's like, there might be good here, but let's make it really good. Let's make it safe and so forth for Christians. And yeah, and I'm not saying there's nothing that's good in culture that started from Christianity. I mean, gosh, things like hospitals and all this kind of stuff have, at least in some way, Christian origins and such. So that's not that's not what we're talking about. But what about what about the other way? Like, what are I mean, like, I'm not trying to be political here, but like when in the middle of the Depression, the government came up with the New Deal to put people to work and feed them during the Great Depression. I think that was a, whether it worked well economically or not. I don't know. That's not my field. But I'm just saying like that was there was probably good in there. Right. And I don't get the sense yeah. it was created because they felt a biblical duty to do so. Right. Well, and you extend that to some of the observations we made. You have your Mormon friends. I have others throughout my life where it's like, you know, you're probably actually pretty cool. Um, you seem to have uh, a way of living in this world that I would classify as good. And yet you're not part of the church. How is that possible? Right. Yeah. And I gotta, I've got to consider, I mean, we could answer that theologically, but we don't need to here. I would actually just say that those people can also, those people, <laughs> people who are good, decent human beings with or without Christianity or Jesus Christ, the church, whatever you want to say, they are fully capable of producing things culturally that can impact us and can have wonderful effects, whether that's an actual artifact like a movie, a book, or whatever, or just a general attitude of living in the world. And I think that's something worth clinging to, is that maybe 
instead of seeing the world as antagonistic to us, or as we've kind of characterized here, we being antagonistic to the world, maybe we can see that relationship differently. And the way we do that is by first recognizing that there is good in the world. Yeah, and, you know, a thought that just is occurring to me now as we talk about this, I'm not sure exactly what this would look like or how it would work, but um, it seems like part of this is that because of the way a lot of churches or the church, I guess, has viewed itself as being the um, standard by which culture should be judged, you know, and because, you know, churches preach, right? We've we've often spent a lot of time preaching at people, whether it's to get them saved or it's to, you know, culture war stuff or whatever it is. And I wonder what it would look like to um, sort of flip that. I don't mean that they need to preach to us. I mean, more of like, what if we really tried to listen to um, people, regardless of what their opinions on the church were. And maybe even like, maybe we should start with the people who have negative opinions, you know, or who have stories of uh, hurt or whatever. Like, and when I say listen, I don't mean listen with the intent to persuade them that they're wrong, necessarily. Uh, That's not what. Well, yeah, exactly. But that's uh, that's what happens to a lot of us do that without even really realizing it, I think. But, you know, I remember I have a friend who considers uh, the church group I used to belong to a hate group because of their stance on gay marriage and such. And I personally am not sh- I think it's more complicated than that. And I wouldn't call them one, you know, but I wonder mm-hmm. if like you know, people in that group, what I think would normally happen if they heard that, well, they, they would just say, well, no, we're not. That's ridiculous, right? But what would it look like if if they listened to that person and said, well, why do you say that, you know, and help, help me understand yeah. and maybe even stop the first conversation there, you know? Um, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it'd be a, it's, it's kind of a nebulous thing, but I just wonder what it would look like if we, if we tried to take the backseat a little bit uh, more than we have. Yeah. And I think I, I really like that. I think that's absolutely true. What if we were listeners more than talkers? What if we were known as people who tried to figure out, tried to understand, tried to appreciate other people before telling them what we think they need to know. And that doesn't necessarily mean the church has to shift to only listen for the rest of history, right? Or the rest of time. Right. I, you know, I, I don't imagine that you know, we're never going to preach again or, or that we have to stop entirely. But I just think, you know, the way you and I've been talking about it here about it is like, it's a needs to be more of a conversation or, or something like that. And it seems like we've been doing a lot of the talking for a long time. And, you know, you ever, you ever, um, you ever been with somebody or gone on a date with somebody or whatever it was, and they only talked about themselves and conversation was like, they'd, Gosh, they'd, yeah. uh, they'd wait for you to pause, nod. So then they could talk about themselves again, you know? And it's yeah. exhausting and annoying and rude and horrible, right? And so we don't <laughs> want to do that. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not saying that's been the case for every church through all of history. But I think at least in my lifetime, my experience of culture and church has been one 
where mostly we, the church, was doing the talking at, talking about ourselves, telling people why they need us, whatever it is, without actually hearing much of what they were saying, unless they came to be members of the church first. Yeah, yeah, and then it would be on our terms, not theirs. Right, and there's that power dynamic again, right? Right. But that's what that's what makes this kind of thing difficult because it does. It, I think it does require us to surrender some of the power that we've had. You know. Yeah, one of the things that I've been working on, you know, this Ryan, but one of the things that I've been working on with our congregation is um, around um, the problem of not listening to people the church has hurt and not welcoming people who are different than us. Uh, and I've been focusing because of my friendship with Ryan, I've been focusing some of that effort on people who happen to be gay. And what's fascinating to me and in the purely abstract intellectual sense is that when I suggest that the way that we move forward is we welcome people who are gay or different in general into our congregation and then have a conversation with them and figure it out together, the number one response, in fact, it's the overwhelming response is, but what? What if? Or, but then what? Then what is a huge one? Well, okay, yeah, I'm all for getting us all together, but then what? Right, right. And I think that's putting the cart before the horse, at least for now. You know, like I said, I don't imagine uh, it's like the whole frontier we're talking about. That's not something that's supposed to be forever. Right. Um, At some point you you live somewhere, I hope. (laughs) Right. Or you build a homestead or whatever it is, if we can take out the colonial implications there. But um, yeah, I mean, we always jump right to the well, what does that mean? Then what? But we don't even have all the data yet, you know. Like we don't, as I've been saying to people, we haven't even practiced that yet. I mean, we don't even know what it's like to sit in a room with somebody who's gay and accept them fully and completely. We we don't know what that looks like because the the labels on either side they don't help. You've got people who exclude, and then you've got people who use gay folks as a uh, a token of look how progressive and awesome we are. Right. And both of those aren't helpful because they're not actually welcoming the person as a person, and they're not actually welcoming that conversation um, as much as they could be if they first listen and they first understand as best as they can what the other side is saying, not other side, the other person is saying. Right. And I think that that kind of listening really shows how much you value the other as a person, right? No, they're no longer the uh, undefined, the culture. It's no longer even non-Christians. It's whoever you're talking to, you know, that yeah. that person or even, you know, those people in the sense of that group of people. But I think that's what I think that's one of the main problems with this idea of church being separate or against culture is that it, I think unintentionally, I'm fairly confident saying that, but I think unintentionally makes or dehumanizes people. You know, Mm -hmm. it says that, like I said, you're only valuable or that's the wrong way to put it. You only have a place at the table if it's our table and you sit with us (laughs) kind of thing. And like I said, I I understand that's probably not the intent of hardly anybody, but 
I think we're in a time now where I don't think we can use the excuse that, well, we didn't know anymore, right? For various yeah. reasons. And that depends on who you're talking with. But um, I think that that doesn't hold up anymore. Yeah, you know, you're making me think like, so the I, immediately I have to ask the question, so why are people doing this? Um, not because I think this is so obvious, but just out of curiosity. Why are people doing this? My mind immediately went to power. But what does power give them? Power and control. Well, it gives them, quite literally, control over the anxiety of the uncertainty of what that relationship looks like. What creates safety. Yeah. Yeah. All safety. um, Safety, uh, let's say artificial safety. Because... It's artificial in that if you don't have anybody in there that can challenge you, then we're seeing what happens to the church, right? Mm-hmm. If the church is not willing to engage, quote unquote, the culture or aspects of the culture, or let's say people within those aspects of the culture, then what's happening right now within the church is going to happen. It will die. There is no reason for it to continue to live. And so it's this artificial safety where, hey, at least I'm safe for my life. At least I'm safe for this period of time. But it's all artificial because eventually that will collapse. It will either collapse in one one person's lifetime or it will collapse in, um, you know, the the American Christian church will look a whole lot different and will be a lot smaller, will collapse. And... um yeah, so I think it's this false safety that we're searching after. However, I really do think it's because we haven't been able to rest with our anxiety of this changing unknown that the culture is. Yeah, and I think one, uh, one I've kind of talked about this already a little bit, but I, I, I think I would say it this way, is that you know, following Jesus is never guaranteed to be safe, right? In fact, mm-hmm. I think quite the opposite. I talked about the story with Ananias and, and Paul, but more than that, I mean, um, Jesus says, what does he say? He says, uh, follow me. What do you have to do to follow him, right? You have to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him, you know? Yeah. Um, and Peter, it talks about how you're supposed to submit even when you're being oppressed. Or Jesus said, you know, if they hit you, let them hit you again. Like none of that is safe, right? Right. Not a single part of our Christian faith is supposed to be safe in the sense that we're talking about here. Um and I think just because we're human beings and we all want to feel safe, right? It's a it's a basic need that we have. And because of some cultural elements of, you know, the United States of America and how, how we view that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. we put this place of where, well, we need to be safe above everything else. Whereas I think denying yourself means you you don't put that as your primary objective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so that means that I think you have to live as much as I hate to say it. (laughs) We have to live with the anxiety. We have to live with the uncertainty. We have to live on the frontier. You just drive that home. We have to live here because that is the place where Christ is. It's where, what do I want to say? It's the place where people are. 
Right. That's what I would say. That's where people are right now. They are in a place where our world is changing so dramatically, and we're recording this during uh, COVID-19. We have no idea when you're listening to this what it might be like, but we're we're in the middle of the quarantine efforts going on. And if it's not just a metaphor for what our world's like because of the literal changes going on all the time, I mean, when I grew up, I remember, because I grew up in 82, I remember buying our very first computer. Hmm. I remember getting my very first uh, Nintendo system. My, I was the one that purchased my very first cell phone and my very first smartphone. And that's just technology. I mean, you take anything and it's changed so much. Like, could you imagine telling former Ryan, hey, you know, in 20 years, you're going to have a little phone that you can play video games on no matter what. That they say is more powerful than the computers they use to land on the moon. Yeah. You know, right. And it's just it's crazy. And that that has an effect outside of technology. But it's just such an easy example of how we've changed so much and how there's so much pent up anxiety within ourselves, within a community, the church, that we're doing everything we can to control that. But maybe the healthiest thing we can do is the very thing we're not doing. And the healthiest thing being, let's name that anxiety, whatever form it comes in, name the unknown, and live with that and see what happens. Yeah, because I think while Jesus says things and requires us to do things that are not safe, I think there's also a guarantee that he will still take care of us in whatever way that looks like, right? Um, it doesn't mean we'll never be persecuted. It doesn't mean we'll never be, you know, hit or have our coats stolen or forced to march by the Roman soldiers or whatever it is. But either now or ultimately in the eternal sense, but whatever it looks like, we're still going to be taken care of. It just may not be in the way we had envisioned it in this idyllic, safe, middle class to wealthy, um, you know, house with lots, you know, whatever it is. Like, I I think, I think we've let that intrude too much on, on what the things that Jesus said we should expect, you know? And I don't like that either. (laughs) You know, I don't like it, but I I mean, I think if we call ourselves Christians, we got to try to take Jesus seriously. Right. Yeah. And if I were to put like a, a, at least one way you could define how Jesus takes care of us. And it it really matters to bring this up, not to add more complexity, but really just to speak into that anxiety. Why I think the way that we can really see that is that no matter what we're feeling, we can always have confidence that God loves us no matter what. Right. Right. And I mean, out of everything that we need, to be taken care of, that is the prime thing. And the church has this wonderful gift to be able to do and give to people is to say, look, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's happening to you, know this, know that God loves you. He is with you because he loves you. And there is literally nothing that can separate you from that love, whether internal or or external. And so that means the anxiety that you feel isn't separating you from love. And guess what? If you make the wrong decision when you're trying to work together and figure out what it is to have 
gay people in the church without defining them as a, a token or the enemy or whatever it might be. If you make a mistake along the way, Jesus still loves you. So why are you so bent out of shape? I know why, but I mean, let's not be so bent out of shape about this because if we make a mistake, our Father still loves us and we can still work together to try to figure out, okay, that didn't work. Now what do we do? Well, and I think that that you hit on something important there is we're so terrified of making a mistake with spiritual things, with church things, with whatever it is, right? Because of how we view all that kind of stuff working. But maybe like, you know, I think about uh, I think about a lot of like a lot of people would have said that Jesus made a pretty big mistake by dying on the cross. Right. Here he is. He's supposed to do something different, changes the world. And then he gets killed. Right. Right. Exactly. But that. Yeah. Nobody got it then. Right. Even the disciples didn't get it until Jesus finally appeared to them again after his resurrection. But I don't know if that if that totally works. But what I'm trying to say is that sometimes good things come out of mistakes. You know, I'm not saying, yeah, sometimes what we think are mistakes are not mistakes and are actually God working. That's what I was trying to say, because I think the cross is a great example of that. Nobody got it. And they all thought that they'd some of them probably thought that they'd followed a uh, somebody who was a waste of time or he was a good guy, but he couldn't do what he said he was going to do, you know, that kind of thing. But the cross wasn't a mistake. It was God working to, you know, change humanity. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think within maybe, that story, I think a really good example of a mistake where Jesus is on the other side is when Peter cuts off the ear yeah. of the guy who's trying to arrest him. And what does Jesus do? He tells Peter, you know, cut it out. <laughs> I could call 10,000 angels, bro. <laughs> yeah. But then he heals the guy's uh, ear, and he doesn't he doesn't chastise Peter. Peter learns from his mistake, oh, Jesus is different than this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe, maybe Jesus will use this because, you know, drill down, that guy who his, his ear was cut off, his life was changed that night. Because could well, you imagine going through that trauma and then all of a sudden it's undone? Yeah, Jesus Himself heals your heals you. I, I mean, yeah, you know, or and Peter's a great example because Peter was simultaneously um, instrumental to founding the faith, and he made a lot of mistakes. You know, whether it was um, yeah. like he denied he had to have a vision that was given to him because right. he was making many mistakes, but. But God worked through him anyway, so that the same Peter who denied Christ three times is the Peter who, in the second chapter of Acts, gets up and and gives the best sermon of his life and and basically says, this is the Jesus that you all crucified, right? And he tells him to repent and be baptized. But I mean, it's hard to imagine that that's the same person, except that God worked through his mistakes, even so and did something amazing with it. So I guess now, you know, I think we both have a sermon in here somewhere, but, <laughs> but, um, but I think, I think that is kind of the stuff we, we need to, to look at seriously as whatever the church looks like, whatever part you're a part of, you know, is that we can't let this crippling fear of mistakes or danger or um, difference or, or change over time, like we can't let that paralyze us into this um, kind of like I think of like a dome on Mars or something, you know, we're isolated, nobody can get to us, but we're safe, right? 
but yeah, not much is going on outside or around us. So um, we don't want to be that way is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And I think what we've done for the last part of this podcast is what we've said we do is we, we honestly do not have the answers, folks. We're not trying to go against things. We're just saying, okay, we've noticed things and we don't like them. Here's where we are with those. Does that mean that eventually we'll come back to a different place um, or even a similar place from where we were? Possibly. But we're on the frontier. We're trying to figure all of this out. We're trying to talk it through and, and say, okay, well, I know that this can't be true, or at least that this is problematic for me. Now, what do I do with this? Because there seems to be something here in this thing we call the church, or as we did with the Bible, what we're going to do next time with salvation. There seems to be something there that we want to hold on to, but we're not quite sure what it is. And just to um, drive home the point for today, and then I'll let Ryan close us out, is that that is going to be anxiety-producing. It should be anxiety-producing. But I want you to know very clearly two things. There are other people like you that are going through that same anxiety, the same problems, same uncertainty. And second, Jesus is with you, and he's going to love you no matter what. If you choose a path that eventually gets you to a place where you're not happy with what you've done, that's okay because Jesus still loves you and you can course correct and you can get there. So Jesus loves you. Um, we are here with you. We're doing this together. And I think that's probably a really good place to say, of, well, what does the church look like? I think that's what it looks like, at least to a, to a degree. Yeah, at least to the two of us and where we're at. You know, I, I'm not saying that nobody is doing this kind of thing because I'm sure somebody probably is. I don't think as much as we'd love to be, I don't think Nate and I are the, um, you know, only ones to think of this kind of stuff. <laughs> but um, I think as, you know, just to kind of wrap things up for us, the other part, as we were sitting there talking about this at the beginning, I was kind of like, well, you know, I just I don't know. Right. I'm not sure how to do this. I'm not sure if it's possible. And by the end of it, as we were talking about it, I found myself getting kind of excited by the idea of what we were what we were talking about, you know, and I wonder if. Yes, there may always be anxiety about this kind of change because it's a big change. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. No, no, uh, no disagreement there. But I wonder if alongside that, can we actually start to be excited about what God can do through this kind of change? You know, yeah. um, can we can we let ourselves imagine and dream and hope for things that we had decided were not possible? You know, I think that's what really has been helping me with this um, frontier stuff. This this place that I find myself is that. Yes, it's scary. Yes, there are times when I wish I could go back to being certain, even if I didn't like <laughs> the certainty that I had, because it felt yeah. safe. You know, it really did. It made sense. I understood it. There was a place to belong, in a sense. I mean, there wasn't, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But at the same time, the exciting part of this is just that, is that like, it's letting me consider things like good things, I think, or I, they're things that I hope can turn into good things in ways that I wasn't able to do before. And honestly, wherever you're at with any of this stuff, I, I hope it's a similar thing for you. I don't care what you believe about any of this stuff in the sense of that's really up between you and God, you know. But what about 
asking God to show us, okay, God, what are you doing that's new? And even if it makes me scared, what are, how are you working through it anyway? You know, and that's, that's it. Remind me, I said that next time I get anxious myself, but um, that's really what I'm trying to remind myself as we work through this kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's what we want to pass on to you. Uh, anyone who's listening, we want to thank you for listening to this. As usual, none of these conversations really feel like they've been concluded. That's deliberate because they haven't been. It's a conversation that continues. So I, I ask that you would continue to be with us through this conversation by listening to more of our podcasts and engaging with us whenever you can. And we're just so glad that you're here with us on this frontier. And I just want to remind you as we close that it is okay not to know. It's okay not to know what you believe. It's, not, it's okay not to know why you believe it. It's okay to be in that frontier because you have other people with you. And of course, you always have the love of Jesus with you as well. We'll see you next time.